It's the Stasipod. It's September, and the weather has finally broken. Uh, for whatever reason, maybe it was Hurricane Ida, things cooled down dramatically as soon as the month changed. And I gotta tell you, I'm loving it. I am a light jacket type of guy. I sort of excel in that weather. And, uh, you know, summer to me, at this late stage in my life, highly overrated. Too hot, too many bugs. So I am uh, all speed ahead on fall. I'm very much looking forward to this. And uh, we got a great Distazapod today. We got some fantastic questions from the Patreon group. Uh, What you may have seen this week is the debut of our second guest designer for the Design of Night slot of our previous campaign for Sen5 and Chromega. Funny to think, uh, you know, it's been over a year since the sort of finalization of that campaign, although it didn't launch until obviously October of last year. Uh, funny to think how long it has been, and now we're finally starting to meet these guest designers, see their designs, and also inching ever so close to Chromega's debut. When he finally gets in your hands, we can close the book on this crowdfunding campaign and say, we did it, it's done, it's shipped, end of end of the story. Um, so, very excited about JT and his design. This is Sen Skate. Uh, also nicknamed the Acid Bath. Uh, really, really fantastic and beautiful color scheme. Like most good designs, it sort of evokes, uh, evokes a lot of different responses from a lot of different people. But uh, at the end of the day, JT said he was inspired by a pair of shoes he had when he was younger. And um, so, you know, I think that's, that's always interesting and always great to sort of pull from your personal life in order to infuse a design with much-needed inspiration. For those curious, we haven't talked about Diver in a while, which was our follow-up crowdfunding campaign that was successfully funded thanks to you guys. Where is Diver at right now? Well, we're going through a second round of revisions on the, uh, essentially the pre-production stage of things. So we had our Diver, we had it printed out, I got a set of the printout, we sent one set to Matt Doughty, and both of us spent a couple weeks just tooling around with it, playing with the joints, seeing how the fits work, noting where there needed to be revisions. Uh, All of that's been compiled, it is now back in Siva Jack's hands, he is going to do all these revisions, we're going to test print another version of Diver, Uh, and then hopefully, if everything looks right, we're going to turn that 3D file over to the factory, and they're going to begin production on this figure. So uh, that's very exciting. In all likelihood, uh, it is going to take a full year, if not slightly more than that, to get Diver in your hands. Uh, Reason being, if you guys are paying any attention, uh, there are still a ton of shortages and global delays. Some of it due to COVID, some of it due to shipping delays and things like that. Uh, essentially, we're doing pretty good at getting product made. The biggest hurdle is in getting the product over here. Um, there are not enough pilots, there are not enough planes, and because sort of shipping by sea has become so delayed, uh, a lot of companies are monopolizing, bigger companies are monopolizing all of the cargo flights out of China. And that means little guys like us sort of get bumped and delayed and sit on the tarmac for quite some time. So I think having patience for not just Diver, but anything new we're going to be doing over the next couple of years is probably a good tack to take. Uh, These things are sort of, you know, obviously out of my control. But I do have our guest designer assortment for Diver all locked in place, feeling good about it. I think it's a very diverse series of designs. I think it's it makes for a really interesting uh, character rollout, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, I am certainly looking forward to getting this bad boy into production and sitting down, <laughs> putting on a pot of coffee, and spending probably three or four days going through these mechanical designs and uh, translating these rough designs into something that China can understand. 
that is probably the most labor-intensive part of what I do. I mean, I, I guess assembling figures here, Frankenslices and such, is labor-intensive, but it's sort of mindless work, and I can put on a podcast, and I can just, you know, break it up over a couple days, go out there, piece together a couple hundred figures by hand and rebag them and whatnot. When it comes to, like, the technical schematic that you hand over to China, um, that's where really, really a lot of brain power gets eaten up with this job. And I'm, I'm kind of waist deep in an order right now. This isn't for Diver. This is uh, pretty much all of our previous tools. Um, I'm trying to plan ahead and order accordingly for what I believe to be a very rocky uh, 2022 full of delays. And uh, I'm like three days into this design process and it's just, uh, boy, it is depleting me. (laughs) But uh, what we're going to get for this time I spend now is some really fantastic figures that I'm very excited about. I'm sort of leafing through these printouts right here. There's a lot of long-awaited designs. Um, There's some fantastic new characters. There's some very ambitious, very risky Franken-slices. But I think overall, it's going to be worth the uh, blood, sweat, and tears because this is going to be a very strong order. And uh, I'm excited about it. I saw a short clip on Instagram from an artist called David Cho, who, uh, granted, is not a guy without controversy, but he said something that I thought was very profound, and I adapted it. He said when he gets up in the morning, he doesn't think to himself, oh, I have to do this. I have to do these mechanical designs. I have to do this painting. I have to do this song. He thinks, instead, I get to do this. And I think that's a really interesting framing device. And I've tried to uh, integrate that into my life as well. Because while this stuff, to me, is very can seem very burdensome, it is actually a gift that I get to do these things. So I'm going to try to realign my perspective on that. And uh, with all that out of the way, I think it's time to answer some questions. It's the Stazapod. Let's go. Oh, also worth mentioning before we hop into these questions, rate hikes, they're coming for postage. Uh, USPS and I believe FedEx have raised their, uh, raised their rates. And unfortunately, I have to pass that along to you guys. Um, As it stands, I typically eat a lot of profit on shipping, especially when it comes to something like Action Figure the Month Club, which theoretically the shipping is already prepaid. It's built into the cost of it. But as the year progresses and as more people join and as rate hikes happen, uh, my profitability on Action Figure the Month starts to shrink and shrink. And I don't mind doing that because you guys have sort of put the cash up front for this service. That is a big question mark, right? You're taking a leap of faith. So typically, you know, I'm happy to uh, eat a couple cents on every unit shipped if if needed. But when there are sort of broadcasted rate hikes, uh, you know, I think on average it's about 75 cents per package that USPS is looking at. the, The increase varies based on zones and size of package and service, but it's about 75 cents across the board. Um, So you're going to start seeing uh, that reflected in the cost of shipping. I've never ever wanted to gouge shipping. I know a lot of businesses make a ton of money doing that. I try to really have my shipping cost be the basic postage and then the labor it takes to stuff and label your order. I really, you know, I'm not looking to make a profit pool off of that. But uh, when the increases happen, unfortunately, uh, it hurts you guys. So just keep uh, an eye out for that. I'm not sure what the solution here is. Uh, Also, important to recognize our good friend Louis DeJoy, who made things so miserable last year for shipping, he's still in place and his position at the USPS. So uh, not much has changed. There was a sort of universal outrage about uh, the treatment of USPS last year. 
uh, and during the Trump administration. People seem to have lost the uh, will to fight that now that there's, you know, a president that maybe agrees a little more with their idea of manners. But uh, that situation has not gotten any better, so uh, keep your eye on the ball. With all that out of the way, let's hop into our first question from Brent Lawson. The Frankenslice new characters have been seeing that we have been seeing lately are using many different device ninja parts. Will we see these device ninjas for purchase? The world needs more ninjas. Thank you, Brett. Uh, no, I, I think it's important to know that Frankenslices are not a one-to-one -one production, meaning I don't run parts for a Frankenslice and run an, a complete figure of those parts, right? Part of the reason is I don't want to take up a production slot to do something so similar. And part of the reason is that I'm interested in having a lot of different part colors and combinations out there. I don't want to double up on the same colors of a, uh, you know, a single part. There are quite a few entrepreneurial people who have decoded how these Frankenslices are broken down and been able to assemble this uh, essentially master mold figure. And I always enjoy seeing that because it is a little bit of a treasure hunt. You know, people do have to kind of figure out and decipher what parts were used for what production. But I, the bigger answer is no, I, I don't have plans to sort of release completed versions of these different components. Uh, they are sort of out in the wild. They can be assembled in that manner, but um, there's no sort of thoughtful intent uh, to their reassembly. They're, they are utilized for their parts to give life to new characters. Next question from Gordon McKinnon Hall. Also, Gordon made a stop to This Toy Life in Connecticut, run by our good friend Bobby Torres. You guys should absolutely take the trip, go visit this store. He is the only authorized Night at the Slice reseller in a brick and mortar in the entire world. And uh, he has some fantastic stuff there. So check out This Toy Life, follow them on Instagram. And if you happen to be in the area of central Connecticut, Go take a little trip over there. I think you're going to find it's worth it. Anyway, on to Gordon's question. Would you ever consider collaborating with other artists you've worked with on your music experiments? I was listening to an interview with Gobbly Prin, and he mentioned he's a musician as well as visual artist. Great question, and some interesting things here. I also watched that Gobbly Prin interview. Uh, very fascinating. Um, you know, I think... Uh, I didn't realize he was completely self-taught, and that is truly staggering if you look at the caliber of art with this guy. But then again, our good friend Ian Amling is also self-taught, and he is, you know, a master artist. So, uh, kind of no surprise there, I suppose. Um, the bigger question of, you know, would I consider collaborating with other artists I've worked with on music experiments, it has happened with... Kenneth West, who's a you know, long-standing patron and squire of The Slice. Um, the problem is twofold for me. One, I have not yet switched over to using Ableton Live, which is a much better sort of DAW or you know, platform for collaborating on music uh, compared to GarageBand, which is what I use because it's free and already on my computers. I think most um, new musicians, if they own a Mac, they kind of default to using GarageBand just because it's there, it's free. And for what it's worth, it is very comprehensive. If you get a MIDI keyboard and you have GarageBand, you have pretty much an entire production studio at your fingertips. You know, so um, I do have to matriculate over to Ableton and, and sort of learn that software. Uh, I am now able to do that for the first time because finally I have a PC up and running. This is a very robust machine. It's been sort of collecting dust for a couple years, but I got it all retrofitted. Shout out to John Smith for coming by and fixing this for me. Really appreciate it. And now this means I can stream on Twitch. I can host the, the streams, which previously Nikki has been doing. And more importantly, my audio is going to sound much better because I can plug directly in to this beautiful PC 
and um, everything will be hopefully sounding much better. I, I can't I can't uh, comment if Nikki's audio will be any louder. That may still be tricky. Uh, if you guys have spent any time watching Twitch streams, audio is always a very elusive thing, and there are plenty of streams that have audio issues. They they just have not figured out a sort of standard way for this to work without, you know, very much troubleshooting. And so it, it's always going to be an uphill battle for us. But I do think having this PC is going to make the streaming experience much better. Um, so I, I guess my answer is, to the first part, I now have the tools to do it. I just have to learn this new software to be able to sort of have a file format that works better for what musicians of other calibers are utilizing. The second part to this is I don't yet have the confidence to really share this stuff um, because I'm, you know, in my infant stage of kind of figuring out how to make noises and record them. So um, I think, you know, I just need a little bit more practice, a little more time before I think I have something that is kind of worthy of, uh, you know, sharing with musicians of a much better caliber. going to attempt to get through this next segment without any dogs barking in the background, but I can't promise you that. So, uh, you've been warned. Matt Bennett has a question here. When a new figure is released with a combination of parts from different companies, do the whole figures from each company have to be produced to create the new figure, or can you choose specifically which parts from the different molds you want to have produced? If it's the former, what happens to those extra parts? I'm going to assume you're speaking specifically about the Glios world and not other toy companies and their collaborations. Um, so let me give you a, a sort of some general answers here. Uh, what we think of as an entire figure is not necessarily one steel tool mold. It could be multiple molds that are utilized to create um, any of the Glyos figures, uh, not just my sort of Night of the Slice line. When there are crossover pieces, it really depends on how many mold uh, tools you need to utilize to get the parts you want to have. So if the Knight of the, the classic Knight of the Slice figure is, let's say, two molds, two separate steel tools, and I only want the base body to use for something like a Hyper Knight, I don't have to run both molds. I don't have to run the, the armor that, that uh, sort of slips on that figure. I can just run that initial mold and have all the pieces I need for a Hypernite with a couple extra pieces like the forearms and the shins. Other factories and other production lines may be able to close off certain cavities within a tool so that you're only running, let's say, the arms or something like that. Um, it's cost prohibitive to do that and it's a bit more complicated and it takes a lot more planning. You're typically going to see factories that do that when they're running tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of the same figure, then the cost benefit is sort of there to do something like blocking off a, a single portion of a steel tool um, to get just kind of specific pieces. I can't really speak to um, the other Glyos makers. They do a lot of crossover collaborations. You know, they, we had the sort of Superpowers collection that came out earlier this summer. Um, Things like, uh, you know, uh, God Beast and his use of the Biomasters um, tools. I, I don't have sort of specific information about how they run their tools and what pieces may or may not be sort of extra to that. You'd really have to ask the specific creators. For my part, if I'm running, uh, you know, something that utilizes, say, Device Ninja pieces with Shikan pieces, I typically try to utilize every single piece in the production, maybe repaint it and put it aside for use later on. Um, you know, I, I try to use every part of the buffalo, as it were, but sometimes there's there's just an odd piece or two that doesn't make any sense, or I have a huge stockpile of that piece in the workshop already, and in that case I'll just have those pieces scrapped, because uh, it may be cheaper than sort of finding another workaround. But generally speaking, and specifically for my production, I can't really pick and choose 
just running a hand or just running a helmet. I have to think about this holistically. Every single part in a tool I have to kind of utilize when I can. It's it's not like a, a sort of pick and choose methodology in which you can just run a, an interesting pair of feet to mix with another figure. You You sort of have to approach this with lots of different utilization of any part you're going to run because otherwise you're you're just letting you know money kind of fly out the window next up a sad story from matt Connolly. our 98 honda civic was stolen this weekend it was our adventure car coast to coast covered in so many stickers really was the most favorite car i ever got to drive what was your favorite jalopy to go adventuring in um well my first car was a ford festiva I believe it was a 1990 Ford Festiva, so it was already kind of old at that period. Um, It leaked gasoline. Uh, It was two doors. These look like little go-karts if you've ever seen them. It was a pretty dangerous car to be driving. And, um, you know, it was not a fancy car, but it got me to school and got me to work. So, um, you know, I, I think even though it reeked of gasoline from the leak and probably could have burst into flames at any moment uh i do have a lot of fond memories with it Uh, hopefully you can recover your car or get a new one soon my friend next up gavin raider with new players mighty maniacs coming onto the scene and the addition of sen and the forthcoming crow mega and verkill it has me wondering how long can a glios line keep fresh before sales begin to slump do you think new molds give a line a shot in the arm to keep things exciting and new while I love seeing new characters created, some fans want to hold on to the classics. I was never a huge fan of the classic knight, but when the Rift Killer and Old Knight showed up, Toy Pizza became more enticing to me. Hackerman and Sen might be my current favorites. Uh, so again, I can't really speak to other people's Glios business, um, but for me, I think, you know, I would say the bare minimum is I need to release a new character every year. Now, obviously, I, I well overshot that goal, Uh, I think we've done four characters a year, maybe even might end up being five this year. We'll see. Um, So, you know, it's different for everybody. From my personal experience, I find that after the third release of a fully painted figure, um, your sales will start to go down with a new figure because it, quite frankly, becomes not new anymore. Toys and toy making, whether we like to think of this this way or not, is a fashion industry, right? And you sort of are only as relevant as your newest design, as the newest product you're introducing, as the new seasonal sweater uh, is coming to your stores. Um, in, you know, in keeping with that, I try to have as much new and fresh stuff as possible, and that means both new tools of new figures, but also revising older figures, making changes to tools, adding a little something, taking out an accessory, cloth goods, etc. I've always approached this as a sort of, you know, fashion slash trend-based market. This is a luxury item, of course. And in order to sort of have longevity there and not have your sort of client base slowly whittle away, you have to keep people excited. You have to keep having something new, a new proposition to put in front of people. So getting back to the initial question, I would say that new molds are not a shot in the arm to keep things exciting and new. I think they are the cost of doing business. They are the entry price. You have to assume you're going to be introducing something new at least every year, uh, or otherwise you're going to be selling to a, a fan base that is going to become more and more diminished over time, especially as new toy makers come out, new products are available, uh, new artists come on the scene. All that stuff can siphon away your core fan base if you're not really offering much of anything but more of the same. Next question from Charlie Pope. Have you ever considered doing a rainbow figure? Either different parts as different colors, all on the main piece, etc. I think a classic knight would look killer in rainbow colors. Uh, Yes, there have been several designs along this line of thinking. If you go to our very first Kickstarter, you can actually see a design for an Impossibear figure. This was going to be fully licensed from Frederator Studios and uh, contemplated this very idea. Now, like most of the concepts shown in our Kickstarter, they of course ended up being way too cost prohibitive to proceed with. Um, So I have thought about a kind of rainbow gradient figure or 
a, you know, something that uh, utilizes several different colors. I don't know what the right answer is yet, with the sort of unicost being the biggest thing that's keeping me from achieving something like this. So uh, it is sort of a long-term goal of mine. I will at some point have it figured out and have what I hope is a very captivating figure. But as of right now, uh, there are sort of more dire priorities on my plate. Next question is from Lance Tomimoto. As the 20th anniversary of 9-11 approaches, and you are a New Englander, and we are of a similar age, what do you recall of the attack? I was 19 at the time, working full-time in a kitchen at a local restaurant, going to school part-time at the University of Hawaii. I guess ours were the generation that first mobilized in this war. I never served, but a bunch of my classmates and a few friends did. We were all just kids. If this is too serious of a topic, please skip. Uh, no, happy to... Uh sort of share where I was. Uh, you know, I also had classmates and friends that went over and served. Um, the Rex Gannon, The Indestructible Man trade paperback, was, the story was written uh, in collaboration with my good friend Matt Bandle, who served over there. Um, I was actually in Florida at the time. I was going to college, and I woke up at my, at the time, girlfriend's Apartment. Actually, I'm guessing we weren't officially boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, apologies. <laughs> I don't want to pull a, a Moby, Natalie Portman situation here. Um, and somehow we found out what was happening, but she didn't have a TV. This was kind of like a, squal uh, a uh, squatter's apartment in, in a lot of respects. Um, and that was not... We were not yet in smartphone territory. But we somehow found out, and uh, I had to drive from Fort Lauderdale back up to my apartment in West Palm Beach, which took about an hour. And uh, we got in the car, and we're driving up, and there were no cars on the highway. And this is I-95 in South Florida. It is usually jam-packed. It's four lanes of traffic each way. Uh, there was not a car to be seen. And... Uh, Anyone who's driven up 95 from Fort Lauderdale to West Palm knows you pass the Fort Lauderdale Airport, which is probably one of the busier airports in this country. There was no activity going on. There were no planes in the sky. This is an uh, airport where the planes, as they're landing, come very, very close to I-95. So you get these really crazy sort of flyovers. Um, there was nothing going on. It was like silent. It, it was really quite bizarre. And uh, for those of our listeners who maybe were born after 9-11, uh, um, nobody really knew what was going on. Uh, once we sort of saw the uh, second plane hit, we knew that this was maybe something intentional. But the, the first pieces of information were uh, completely chaotic and nobody knew. They just thought there was, uh, uh, you know, maybe there was like this... Um, sort of Y2K style virus that was going on in, in the uh, navigations of planes, you know, like some kind of coordinated glitch or something. Um, so it was, you know, very crazy, very frantic. I also remember, and this doesn't get talked about very much, but there was a plane that crashed a few days later, and I want to say it was over Long Island. It was, uh, it was a plane leaving from one of the New York airports. Just looking this up quickly, yeah, American Airlines Flight 587 on November 12th. So that was another crazy thing. Um, I'm wondering if, uh, I don't know if they ever figured out what it was, but that killed everybody on board. And it, it, it sort of felt like, um, okay, was that a terrorist attack as well? Like, what <laughs> is this going to be a daily occurrence? Just planes getting picked out of the sky? Uh, so all in all, it was, you know... Um, it's the type of thing I, uh, I'll never forget, obviously. Also, there was a very interesting NPR series on memory, and they use 9-11 as an example, and they check in with people every year and have them give a, re a recollection of 9-11 and where they were and, you know, tell the story of them remembering it. 
and uh, almost nobody says the same things every year. You know, memory is very fungible and um, is sort of uh, ever-changing. So I think that's also a complete side note, but but an interesting thing. So, uh, yeah, other than that, I don't really have any good things to say about 9-11. So let's move on. Next question from Charles. Um, not a fan, but inevitably Gene Simmons will contact you for a Night of the Slice Kiss collaboration. What base bodies do these marketing juggernauts use? Wrong answers only, please. Or do you steer him towards another Glios creator, and who is that unlucky soul? Well, Charles, the, the good news is I don't think Gene Simmons uh, does any of his outreach for licensing, thankfully. And we are far too small to uh, attract the interest of, uh, you know, an, an empire like the Kiss Army. Um, but I get, I take your meaning here. They obviously will slap their logo on anything. And, you know, almost every toy company has made Kiss figures. Uh, for me personally, Kiss are not of my era. When I was getting into music, Kiss were a joke. You know, it, it was like something maybe your uncle listened to, uh, you know, maybe your dad. Uh, but they were just goofy and they look like old guys and they're maybe even, you know, uh, grandmothers in makeup. Um, so, you know, Kiss isn't for me, but I'm sure, I, I in fact know, that, you know, my part-time helper stated that she has never heard of Trent Reznor, didn't know who Nine Inch Nails were. So, I get it, it's generational. People probably feel like uh, early Nine Inch Nails are pretty goofy if you're not born of that era. So I'm trying to be nice and say that uh, Kiss just isn't for me. Matthew Monthy's got a good question here. My first and personal favorite classic knight is Royal, partially because he's got that one-of-a-kind tattoo on the back of his head. I know the Combat Twins had similar tampos, but on the arm. Any chance we'll see similarly finely detailed tampos again, or are those too expensive? What I'd give for a classic knight with a tramp stamp. Um, so I'm not against tampo printing. It, it does cost a little bit more money, but, you know, if it makes sense, I'm inclined to use it. Um, I just, you know, I felt like my designs and my color theory have been strong enough that I don't need to add a tampo print to sort of add anything to the design. I think if you design a figure well and you have the correct application of spray masks, and you understand color theory, and, and you can really pick evocative combinations, uh, you don't really need a tampo. I would say also, historically, figures with a tampo print have not sold any better than figures without one. So I don't have any data that would sort of, uh, you know, persuade me to include tampos. There's, there's no proof that I'm going to sell 10 more 20 more, 100 more of a figure if it simply has a tampo. I think it comes down to a matter of personal taste. Some people like them, some people don't care. I've even seen people that, you know, take um, uh, nail polish remover and remove tampo prints on the figures I've done, which is funny. So, uh, you know, I I'm happy the option's there. I apply it when I think it, it makes meaningful sense, but... Um, you know, I see my figures as being relatively complete without them. Next up, Gave to Tovar. That's not a hard name to say. Don't know why I stuttered there. Uh, why do certain plastics and toys tend to deteriorate or fall apart faster than other plastics? Stuff like gold plastic, for example, which is frequently back in the day, but now anything that used that stuff crumbles into dust at just a glance. Do you ever take consideration on avoiding certain plastics due to possible issues like this? Obviously, all plastics in any form will face some sort of deterioration or other issues over time, but I'm curious how much of an effect uh, it has when it comes to toy production. Have any early Night of the Slice releases faced any issues like this, especially now uh, how long the line has been around? So, technically this is more than one question, but I'll allow it because I think there's some good stuff here. Um, you know, I, it's not necessarily the plastic itself that causes deterioration, but rather the additives to the plastic. And those can be numerous, and there can be different reasons for having additives in plastic. Color being one of them, uh, glow being another one of them. The mold release agent, which is the sort of lubricant that allows or prevents the molten hot plastic from sticking 
to the mold itself. Like there, there's a combination of chemicals that go into plastic manufacturing. And while I, I'm not sort of uh, scientifically trained in these reactions and, and plastics, uh, I have a sort of layman's understanding uh, of how this works. My guess is that the additives are actually what leach out as opposed to the plastic itself. Um, and for my sort of experience in this world, there is no rhyme or reason to why some of these plastics last a little bit longer versus some of them don't. You also, you are sort of taking factories and taking more importantly, or more specifically, their vendors at face value on what type of plastic you're buying. You know, we've all uh, come across six inch figures that right out of the package snap. And that's because they got a bad batch of POM material. And, uh, you know, there's kind of little you can do to police that and catch it ahead of time. You sort of figure it out as it's happening. Um, so, you know, I'm sure there are people that could sort of better answer this question and point to the exact molecular compounds that predict this stuff. Uh, I don't know what those are, and I don't know very many people uh, who even have more experience than I do in manufacturing that could point to this stuff. Um, largely because it's very gray uh, where your source for these plastics and the additives is coming from. We don't have full transparency over that sort of stuff. I do find that PVC plastic, which is what the majority of Knights of the Slice are made out of, tends to last a little bit longer than ABS plastic, which is more brittle, which is, uh, you know, sharper detail, uh, higher transparency. If you think of the armor that goes on a classic knight, that's ABS. Uh, that tends to sort of break down and be more fragile over the long term, but it is more fragile anyway, even when it's sort of fresh off the assembly line. So the sort of bigger heuristic here, the framing device for plastics, as I'm always pointing to, is that plastic is not a permanent media. We think of it as being that way because, you know, it, it will likely outlive us, but there is a shelf life to plastic and toys are not a permanent medium. They will eventually deteriorate. Could be thousands of years, could be a hundred years, uh, but it will happen. So, um, you know, I think the permanence is something to understand uh, when you're in this hobby and as you you know as you put a couple decades under your belt as a collector these things are going to break down Keith Joy's got a good question here with Verkill finally here and the possibility of using the Shikan head for a non-Shikan character love that bonus head with the light green material by the way will we maybe see a Gladys compatible Skull Grimace and Frankenslice in our future or is the best bet uh, sorry or are the dead best left dead um, so Shikan's head is so specific to the Shikan body, it doesn't really work that well, uh, you know, with cross builds. That's part of the reason I didn't market the green Star Marshal with that on it, because I think it does look a little goofy, but it gets the point across. Um, so I'm not inclined to use Shikan's head for a bunch of different stuff, although his other pieces are really valuable. Um... And, you know, Skull Grimson, I, I don't know what the future for him is. The character is very much dead and gone and hasn't resurfaced. So, um, you know, I think largely people are going to be left to customizing if that's a character that, that sort of speaks to them. Moving over to our Facebook question, Sam Sherry, are you planning a crossover with Rokum? Uh, I have, uh, we've discussed it. We don't have anything finalized. Um, you know, I, I think I love seeing the, you know, the Mighty Maniacs um, torsos on the Night of the Slice body and vice versa. I think it's a lot of fun. But uh, I, I think the challenge is finding something to do that we're both comfortable with you know he may not want his characters to only exist in this sort of stretched out elongated form 
and I may not want my characters to sort of look super deformed in comparison to them. So I think there's a lot of like aesthetic questions and things we have to kind of sort out for ourselves. But um, we've definitely been in touch and, you know, we are both impressed with everybody's customs that utilize uh, both of our lines. Edgar Rivas, after seeing September Action Figure of the Month spoilers, I'm loving Verkill even more. I guess that's a spoiler in and of itself, but at this point, a lot of people have gotten theirs and pictures are online. Uh, will we be seeing more Verkill before the year ends, perhaps for the holidays? Great question. And also, this lets me um, sort of address uh, some feedback that's been online lately. Um, the purpose of Action Figure of the Month Club is to sort of get people's stuff before anybody else, right? To, to give you some mail to look forward to, and uh, when permitted, to debut figures first with the Action Figure of the Month Club members. I think that's sort of the big draw here, that's the big offer, and uh, generally what people kind of look forward to. Uh, now, within the Knights of the Slice, we're always gonna have material style figures that have minimal or no paint, uh, this is just the nature of the beast and something that is probably the number one requested things uh, that I hear about through either email or chatter online. People want unpainted versions of figures and uh, particularly they love glow and they love metallic swirl, right? These are the, the two sort of precious uh, types of plastic that people will always ask for and probably are amongst our better sellers. So when it comes to Action Figure of the Month Club figures being of this minimal paint style or of a material style, that's to serve one of two things. One is to put in the hands of my hardcore collectors the specific material styles that are super popular that may not see a public release, right? You guys may be the only people that get to have that version of the character. The other thing is, in the case of Verkill specifically, uh, by shipping a material style or an unpainted style, that gives me about four to six weeks production time uh, saved. So I'm able to get uh, in your hands before anybody else something that may not debut for many weeks later. Now, in the case of Verkill, I actually went uh, the extra step to add a little bit of deco to the eyes and to the hair and the purpose here being I wanted just a little piece of distinction and this actually took us a couple more weeks uh, you could have had an unpainted Verkill in your hand uh, slightly earlier but I felt like I wanted to just you know start going down the spray mask uh, route and at least have a, a little little bit of color thrown on there so that's, as a refresher, the sort of premise of Action Figure of the Month Club. You're going to get something before anybody else. You're going to be the first person in this customer base to get to hold something like the Verkill. But yes, the first versions of figures are going to be sort of unpainted or of that material style. It's just kind of the nature of the beast. There is a bigger existential question here. And... It's becoming more and more clear to me as the months move on. Uh, Action Figure of the Month Club is not sustainable. And it's not sustainable because of the supply chain. Now the question is, does Action Figure of the Month Club last another year? Does it last 10 years? I don't have the answer to that question. But I can tell you this year in particular has been the single most difficult year to keep the club up and running solely because of getting goods from China over here. It's been an immense struggle. There is a scenario in the future where the Action Figure of the Month Club is no longer the Action Figure of the Month Club, it is simply the club, and releases are staggered throughout the year. You know, that may be something that happens. You also factor in the fact that air freight is becoming harder to arrange and more expensive, and domestic shipping prices have gone up as well, uh, we see ourselves in an untenable situation. Now, I'm not prepared to make a decision today. I'm not prepared to say the club is over. Uh, I'm going to obviously meet all my obligations for this year, 
and continue to highly scrutinize what next year looks like. But uh, this is a sort of experiment that has been conducted under duress and uh, in my mind is a successful experiment. So just collectively, let's be happy about what we've been able to accomplish together and the surprise that we get every month. And hopefully we can keep it going because that is a very big question mark for sure. Now, uh, apologies for that sort of sidejack. Let me get back to the sort of spirit of Edgar's question. Will we be seeing more of Verkill before this year ends, perhaps the holidays? You will absolutely be seeing more Verkill. You will be seeing um, him, I don't want to say relatively soon, but I would say sooner than the end of the year. Fingers crossed, knock on wood, assuming logistic problems do not uh, sort of smite us. So uh, I'm hoping so. I certainly have quite a few things planned for Verkill, and uh, thanks for standing by. Next up is Thomas Jonte. If the line wasn't locked into the pizza motif early because of Toy Pizza, would Knights of the Slice have a different name? Uh, it would absolutely, and it did initially. The idea for this toy line actually predated Toy Pizza on Frederator and on YouTube. Um, the original name for this line was Retronauts, and the idea was essentially, you know, I had the idea of Super 7 Reaction, but had no means to sort of execute it. And obviously, Brian hit it out of the park and did a much better job. So that was the kind of original premise of this 4-inch toy line, which became Knights of the Slice. It was to take a Kenner Plus style figure and do a bunch of different sculpts, have different artists do their decos on them. You know, everything that Knights of the Slice has come to be was this original idea of Retronauts, which, you know, never happened. Quentin Russo, I discovered Arby's had a cool wave of toys called Dinosaur Adventures. I know this line. I have some of them. They're really great. Something about neon dinos in beach attire with interchangeable parts screams, yes, please. Could we perhaps see something similar in the future? Something like Pangea Rat with a new dino head, maybe a two-pack with a recent reptile head. That way we can swap some wild colors. Any thoughts? Pizza out. Technically, I think there's more than one question here, but I'll allow it. Um... I definitely have a bunch of ideas for different dinosaurs, different Pangea Island uh, inhabitants. There's there's a whole lot of stuff I want to do in that world. So I, I think you'll be very pleased, and that should be a sort of uh, you know focus going forward for the narrative and for new characters we meet and things like that. Next up, Jeremy Price. I was really intrigued by Sen in Tales from Pangea Island and Summer of Nights. And now having the figure in hand, which is flat out amazing, my curiosity is exploding. Do you have any big story arcs planned for an instance of Sen? So far, he seems to be a complimentary character and an underdog, though I do like that about him. Uh, yes, I do have a sort of big defining moment for the Sen units. Um, I need more time to sort of cultivate that and then find the right juncture in which to insert that into the main Night of the Slice story. But I, I definitely, I have in my brain what I want to do there. I think it'll be very interesting. Um, and, you know, I guess, if anything, I'm hesitant to plop down a very big definitive narrative about a single Sen unit in this early stage because the need of characters can kind of change as I'm telling the story. And... I was very hesitant to do the Tales of Pangea Island because I felt like, okay, this is this is locking into place the story of Lince Run Bro and Radic, and is it giving too much away? Will I have to retcon portions of this later? Will it still make sense? Um, but I committed to it. I think it's a good story, and you know, uh, any hesitation I kind of have about those things tends to dissipate after I publish something. So, uh, very happy that you read both those stories and I thank you for that and yes we do have uh, some big meaty roles for Sen units to play in the future. Speaking of Sen units everybody's got Sen on the brain. Eric Valverde any more intel on the company that makes Sen? Like are they out for sheer profit part of a faction whose agenda is some kind of political power move? Do they have a name? 
Eric, this is highly classified information. This is sort of top-tier operator need-to-know basis, and uh, it has never been disclosed to the public. And what all that means is that I just haven't decided for myself what that is. That does it for our questions today. Thank you, guys. These were really excellent. A couple things to go over. Uh, I am watching a show that is really fantastic. It's on HBO. It is called The Other Two. And it reminds me of Arrested Development. I think it could be the heir apparent to that once great show. Uh, I really, really think this is a hysterical show. I highly recommend it. Very easy to watch. Very talented actors in it. Um, In particular, there's a sort of very minor character uh, played by an actor named Josh Segarra. And uh, besides almost having the name of you know, my uh, childhood friend, Josh Guerra, he is Vaughn incarnate. You know, this is an actor who absolutely could play Vaughn. Um, It's really hard to sort of pin down why he's so funny uh, and his sort of mannerisms, but it's, it's perfect. It's absolutely there. So I would beckon that you uh, check this out and watch it. It's a, it's a really, really fantastic show. The character's name is Lance, by the way, if you want to sort of cross-reference this. Probably not the first actor you would pick to play Vaughn, but uh, imagine him in a wig. It all makes sense. Also, anything Ken Marino is in is always going to be sort of brilliant, and he truly shines in this. Um, Just one of those, just a comedic actor who always brings something heavy to every single role. Uh, It reminds me a lot of um, him in the later seasons of Eastbound and Down, which was like, a, you know, perfect, perfect Ken Marino. But anyway, the other two, HBO, I think you will really dig it. Are you not a patron? Well, folks, you gotta be. Patreon.com slash Jesse Uh Up on Patreon right now is my interview with the great Bill Oakley of Simpsons fame, of Mission Hill fame, and now uh, a man who travels the world solving food crimes. Really fantastic uh, little interview with Bill. Very kind, very funny guy, very generous with his time. You can go watch the video now on Patreon.com. There will be a sort of formal release on our YouTube, which is YouTube.com slash Toy Pizza. At some point in the future, uh, also an audio version of that interview will be up on Pot as well. But if you don't want to wait for that, dig into Patreon and uh, go ahead and select it. Every Tuesday night, and sometimes even more frequently, we are on twitch.tv slash Knights of the Slice. You can watch us there. And every Friday, the already mentioned youtube.com slash Toy Pizza has a new video at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. So uh, if you're bored, if you're tired of Marvel movies, if for some reason you like the sound of my voice, or you like the twinkle in Nikki's eye, there's lots of great stuff to watch, and you can even watch it for free or listen to it for free uh, on any of these channels. And all we ask in return is that we all collectively stop thinking Elon Musk is a smart guy. That's all we ask. Just just acknowledge it. Say it out loud. He's a dumb guy. Uh, he's not helping anything. Let's just come to that reality, and in exchange, we'll give you all this free content. Okay, sound good? Great. Excellent. Pizza out.